<laughs> well, welcome everyone. Um, for our guests, what we've been doing in our Sunday school sessions is we have for over a year now, really, been working through uh, systematic theology. And for the past couple of weeks, Pastor Emilio's been taking us through a section in the, in the systematic study of theology under the doctrine of the church. That's what we've been studying the last couple of weeks. And um, as most systematic theologies work through that subject, uh, the majority of them come to the same uh, more um, specific aspects of the doctrine of the church um, that deal with church government, church polity, the structure of the church, um, the roles within leadership of the church, those types of issues. And because we came up to those uh, more specific aspects of church government, we thought that it would be a, a good idea to actually um, address this systematic topic from a more expositional <coughs> standpoint. And so what we're actually going to begin today is a study of the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to study the book 1 Timothy. I don't know how long it's going to take us. Um, we're just going to be doing a survey of sorts of the book. But um, when we've gone through Galatians like this, it took us eight weeks. When we went through James, it took us ten weeks. So 1 <coughs> Timothy, I'm not sure, probably eight to twelve weeks. Something like, depends on you guys. Depends on <laughs> how many questions you have, I guess. But um, that's what we're going to set out to do. Now go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because 1 Timothy chapter 3 is going to describe for us why we would want to open to the book of 1 Timothy to study the doctrine of the church. Why is 1 Timothy an appropriate text or an appropriate book in the Bible to study a systematic topic such as the doctrine of the church? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul actually gives us um, very straightforwardly here, the purpose of this letter. Why did Paul write this letter to Timothy? Well, it says right here in 1 Timothy 3.14. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So you see here just this purpose statement that the reason Paul's writing this letter to Timothy is so that Timothy might know how one is to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. And so that's why this book ends up being a very relevant study for us as we're studying the doctrine of the church and studying how it is we are to organize the church, run the church, manage the church, all of these things. This book was written specifically um, with that in mind. And so we thought it would be a good chance to take a break from, I guess, just a, a, a more general systematic theology study to break off and, and do a little survey of 1 Timothy. So that's what we're going to do today. Just by way of introduction, 1 Timothy is the first of three books, um, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, um, these books together that have been come to be known as the pastoral epistles. Um, these are books that the Apostle Paul has written to these men, Timothy and Titus, um, these men have been given some oversight of some churches, and the Apostle Paul has written these letters, um, all three of them with the general purpose of directing these, these men who have been given charge over these churches, and, and he's instructing them on how they are to 
minister in the church, how they're to manage the church, how they're to shepherd and pastor the churches. Um, it's interesting to note as, as these have been come to know, and these weren't called the pastoral epistles to the 1700s. Um, one guy came up with that, that name and it kind of stuck, which is it's appropriate. But as I thought about the pastoral epistles, nowhere in, anywhere really in the New Testament is Timothy called an elder or a pastor and neither is Titus, which I thought was interesting. Their situation to me seems almost a little unique in that I, I'm just calling them apostolic representatives because the Apostle Paul actually put these guys in these churches as his representative. Um, Timothy is actually not an apostle. Um, it's, it's interesting, as you note, um, at the beginning of some, some of Paul's letters when he writes to these churches and Timothy's with him, he'll say things like, Paul the apostle and our brother Timothy. He makes a very clear distinction between the two and, and their roles. But as you look at these, um, these texts, you see that these men were installed in these churches. I'm sure they did. Uh, they were uh, functioning as elders, um, but they did have the authority behind them of the apostle Paul specifically. So that I think they were in a little unique situation, but nonetheless, we're definitely seeing how we are to organize and run our churches. Um, these were occasional letters, of course. Um, Paul's writing to these men for very specific reasons under specific problems and issues in their churches. Um, so they have their own unique place historically, but as with all the books of the Bible, um, God uses those specific <laughs> circumstances and, and, and had the apostles write these letters so that we might benefit and be able to apply all of the teachings that Paul's giving to Timothy and to Titus, we can apply these to, to our situation. So as Paul's writing and helping to, to work in these churches, we can take this teaching and apply it to our church and know how to run our church as well. And so I think as you go through the pastorals, the, the goal, what you should be trying to get out of this and what you will get out of it ultimately is, is you're going to see how to have an, an apostolic church. You're gonna, we're going to be seeing how to have a biblical church in that sense, um, a church that honors God and, and ultimately honors uh, the head of the church, who is Christ. That's, that's what we really want to um, ensure that our church is as we read this. We can, we can check our church. We can um, uh, put ourselves against the word of God and, and make sure that we line up. But that is the ultimate goal, to have a biblical church. And as I've studied already in 1 Timothy, I'm, I'm very encouraged um, just by where we're at in comparison to the pastoral epistles. It's, it's by the grace of God that we sit in a, in a biblical church in that sense. Um, so, yeah, praise the Lord for that. Um, I did want to note this, that as most of you are familiar with these letters, um, at least in general for sure, um, we're going to see in these letters uh, the, the leadership roles being mentioned of apostles and elders and deacons and these sorts of things. Um, but I did want to... Uh, point out that we must never forget, even as we read through these things and, and talk about apostles and elders, that uh, we can never forget what I just uh, referenced a minute ago, that Christ is the head of the church. You see, the elders, the church is not the elders' church. Um, this church here in Ephesus that, that Timothy was put in charge of, uh, this church was not even the apostles' church. Um, this is the church of Jesus Christ. He is, he is the head and um, I just referenced Colossians 1.18 for that, where it says specifically, speaking of Christ, he is also head of the body, which is the church. 
you see. Jesus Christ is the head over the church. Um, and really, it's through the church. If you reference like the parallel text to, to Christ being the head of the body, like in Ephesians, for instance, what it's teaching to us is that through the church, through Christ's body, this is how God, this is how Christ specifically is glorifying himself in all of the created order through the church, through us, through what we're doing actually right now. Um, the angels are longing to look into these things, and it's, it's kind of, it's unbelievable. It, the way God is actually using, whether we realize it or not, using these meetings, these gatherings, everything that we do as a church, God is glorifying himself through these. So I just mentioned that by way of introduction because as we go through the book of 1 Timothy, um, and we're seeing how we are to behave, how we're to conduct ourselves in the household of God, uh, this, is, this is no way um, simply some kind of uh, merely practical exercise in formalism as we try to conform our church to the Bible. This isn't a mere formalism or, or some sort of uh, legalistic morality that we're trying to submit our to. This, this is actually how the head of the church commands us to glorify him. That's what we're doing as we try to conform ourselves to uh, the apostolic churches here. We want to glorify Christ as as he's revealed that he wants us to glorify him. That's, that's our task and that's our job. And, and it's really our pleasure. Um, he reveals our, his will and we submit to it. I think um, that this is really one of the blessings of being in that submissive role. As Christ is the head and even as elders, we are submissive to the head. It's the blessing in that... Um, <clears throat> He's the one who commands, and we simply follow. Meaning, it's a blessing in that Pastor Emilio and I are not responsible for coming up with how to do church. We're not responsible for coming up with, you know, uh, innovative ideas or, or ways that, that Christ can be glorified. He actually tells us how he wants to be glorified, and we just get to do it. It's that easy. It takes really all of the, the pressure and, and responsibility in that sense um, away from us. I try to encourage my wife with that aspect of, of her submission to me. That's actually, sometimes that's a, you don't understand the blessing. You, have no, you don't have that pressure and the responsibility to manage and to govern and to make these sort of, you don't have that. Be glad you don't have that. You know, be glad you don't have that. So I am. I'm glad that Amelia and I don't have that responsibility of trying to invent the church and, and make it work. Um, we just do what the Word of God says, and it's actually it's a blessing to be in that role. So... That's all introduction. So now let's look at the text here um, because the Apostle Paul begins this letter of 1 Timothy with a very standard Pauline introduction. He gives the author, he gives the recipient, and he gives us the occasion for the letter. So beginning in verse 1, the text says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. See, that's the author, that's the recipient, and at least an introduction to the purpose and, and occasion, really, for this letter. Um, the Apostle Paul, I don't think, needs any um, introduction 
from us or for you, really, but I did want to note um, the introduction that Paul himself gives in the letter, at least. Um, He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And as he gives that introduction in this context and knowing the rest about Apostle Paul's um, calling and ministry, we're taking that, um, that word apostle as capital A apostle in that sense, if you understand the distinction that I would be making by saying Paul's an, an apostle, capital A. Um, the distinction I would be making there is that uh, the word apostle, uh, which simply ma- means to be a sent one, is used throughout the Bible um, to not denote the, the office of an apostle, but just anybody who is sent in general. But that's not what the Apostle Paul would be referencing in this context here. He is an apostle, capital A, uh, meaning in the sense that he is a called apostle, a called sent one by Jesus Christ himself, um, with the authority that these capital A apostles would have had, the authority of Jesus Christ to instruct and to um, command these churches in in in, in any aspects that God had led them. Now, I wanted to open this up for a moment just on that point. Um, how is it, in what sense, does the Apostle Paul fulfill uh, the biblical mandate for being a capital A apostle? You see, in what ways, what were the requirements, in a sense, to be a capital A apostle in the way that I'm using that phrase? Yes, Keith. That is, that is one. He must have seen, you must have seen the Lord, the risen Christ. You must have been a witness to the resurrection. How was the Apostle Paul qualified for that? Or maybe when was he, when did he get qualified in that sense? On the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him, didn't he? Blinded him. So yes, that's right. I had that one. What else? What else qualified one? Yes, sir. Sin. Directly by Christ, commissioned by Christ to go. Yeah, which was also part of that that experience with the Apostle Paul. He was directly commissioned um, by Christ Himself to be an apostle. Any other, any other ideas? Performing uh, miracles. Yeah, I had that one too. Performing miracles. Why? How do we know that that's a requirement for capital A apostleship? Well, Jesus said, you know, you'll, you'll be able. To the dead and oh. Right. Yeah, Jesus spoke of of the apostles, his twelve at least, and originally to be able to do those sorts of miracles. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of one text in specific that I always have in my mind. It's Second Corinthians twelve twelve. Yeah. Kind of an easy one to remember, just because the twelve twelve. But I can read it to you. The apostle Paul says there, Second Corinthians twelve twelve, and this is where you can kind of get that capital A apostleship from exegetically in a sense, but here it says the signs, Paul speaking of himself and what was uh, performed there before the Corinthian church, he says the signs of a true apostle, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So that true apostle I'm saying is what we're referring to as capital A apostle, those who actually were given this calling and this Miraculous ability to do signs and wonders and miracles, affirming, attesting to their, legitimizing their apostleship, right? So if there's these, these men in these churches here in Ephesus where Timothy's at, you know, oh, I'm an, I'm, I'm an apostle and they're claiming apostleship, but 
they don't have the signs and wonders attesting to Christ's affirming of them, they're illegitimate in that sense. See? So, yeah, that's right. Um, anything else on that? Um, I, just, I just put this, uh, this note here that I think is interesting because um, at the beginning of the book of Acts, you remember when uh, Judas is needing to be replaced. You remember like some of the requirements that they came up with? They said that we need to find somebody who's been with us since the beginning. Yeah. Right? Which to me was always strange because Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't with them since the beginning. So, but it's interesting that that is um, a recognized, in a sense, exception for the Apostle Paul. He recognizes that because in 1 Corinthians 15, um, he, he references himself as being one who was untimely born in, in the way he... So he recognized, yes, I wasn't um, born into my apostleship in the, the normal way. I am certainly the exception. I was untimely born. I was, I was definitely a late, coming, a late comer to my calling. I also put one more. I put that the apostles, um, the other apostles, the affirmed apostles, even the original 12, affirmed the apostle Paul in his ministry. I think that's... That's relevant. Even as you look at Acts 15 where Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and meet with the, the apostles there, they affirm him. Luke's already referred to the apostle Paul as an apostle prior to that. So the apostle Paul was already carrying on that apostolic ministry. He goes to Jerusalem and the, and the brethren re- receive him there as an apostle. You see, so that, that certainly affirms this. Um, as our, as our position is for our church, and just getting back to the subject at hand, I think is in a sense of uh, the doctrine of the church, um, we, don't, we don't believe that this, that this uh, office of the church continued after the first century. We don't believe that the office of apostle, capital A, continues. Um, why, why wouldn't we believe that that, that, that office continued? Any any thoughts on why maybe that apostolic office um, ended with those original apostles, Jonathan? Nobody to this day can qualify under those qualifications that we just mentioned. Right, so we just went through the qualifications of an apostle, and um, yeah, nobody has seen the resurrected Lord, right? Nobody has personally had that calling. The signs and wonders, right, would have to accompany that. Um, those types of things, yeah, that's right. Um, any other ideas? I mean, yeah, I think that definitely is valid. That's, that's true. Yes, ma'am? It would seem as though all the Catholic apostles are appointed by Christ himself, you know, but nowadays, you know, with the church, you know, we appoint an elder, you know, we, we are not Christ. So. Right. That kind of goes to, like, one of the points that I thought of is that, as we'll see in the, the pastorals or in First Timothy even specifically, um, he tells us how to appoint the offices of the church, right? What are the requirements for eldership and deacons? But apostle is not listed there as if that's not something that would be continued to be um, passed on. And there is no requirements now given for apostles because you're not going to be appointing any apostles. The church isn't going to be recognizing that anymore. So, yeah, I definitely had that as well. Um, I, th- I, I had Ephesians 2.20 in mind where it says that... Um, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles were fa- a fa- played a foundational role. In the, you don't relay the foundation, you see. The foundation was laid by the apostles, and 
um, therefore that they wouldn't uh, be required to be carried on. And uh, you had mentioned also 1 Corinthians um, 15. Yeah. And when it says that uh, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, uh, as to the untime, as to the one untimely born, he also uh, appeared to me also. Very good. So, what what's the point that you? Well, he's saying that last of all, he appeared to uh, the apostle Paul. Therefore, right. any thereafter is <clears throat> null and void. I think that's a good point. The Apostle Paul recognized that Christ was, we're talking about the necessity of Christ having to appear to you to give you apostolic uh, role. Paul says, he appeared last of all to me. The last one that Christ appeared to was, I think that's good. I think that's a good point. Um, I also had a note here that we don't even see in the book of Acts um, after the original 12, right? Uh, Matthias takes over for Judas. We don't see apostles being replaced after that. Um, we see in Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, who was one of the apostles, put to death by the sword, but he's not replaced, you see. So the original 12, um, following Matthias, you don't see the apostles being replaced even after death. Um, yeah, I think that's good. Y'all feel good with that, that the apostle, apostleship doesn't continue? Good. Yes, ma'am. So what about the apostles, like, well, the, those who call themselves apostles today, lowercase a, what's their agenda or mind frame behind that? Because I didn't know there was, like, a distinction. Well, when I hear that word, I don't think of a distinction. I just know, like, they're calling themselves apostles, but I just I don't know why. Well, my question would be to somebody who calls themselves an apostle, are they referring to themselves as what we're saying, capital A apostle? Or are they just using the word apostle as a sent one. Um, because as I said, even in the New Testament, there are other people who clearly aren't, are called apostles. They're sent out by the church, apostles of the church, it calls them, which is a more general term for people who are sent as in missionary, evangelistic type endeavors. Um, they're called apostles, but we don't, we, it obviously doesn't seem to be refer referencing the office of capital A apostles. So I would ask that person, what do you mean by calling yourself an apostle, first of all, and then you could call them to the requirements biblically of what an apostle is required to be and challenge them on that front. But I think there's wisdom in like what I've heard a lot, a lot of people say is that it's just not wise to use the term apostle of yourself because of the confusion that it can, you know, we wouldn't need to call anybody, even if we sent somebody out on a missionary endeavor, we wouldn't need to call them an apostle, mm -hmm. even though we are sending them. So in that sense, they, they are an apostle, but it's just not a, hel a helpful right. phrase at this point, right, in church history in that sense. So, you know, I would just ask them what they mean. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we probably can expect, you know, somebody who is still using that term most likely is using it in a, in a very, they're trying to hold themselves in a very authoritative type of role, right? Yes, sir. I think you touched on one of the things earlier that helps clarify it, where there's a big difference between an apostle of Jesus Christ mm. and the apostle of the church that was sent out. Yeah, some people are drawing distinctions, right, in between the phrase that when Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ in other texts where it says apostles of the church. And the, that's the, one of the distinctions textually they're drawing between the capital A and the, what we're saying is maybe like a lowercase a situation. So... Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely there as well. So, 
it's because of all of these realities that the Apostle Paul fulfilled and actually carried out in his life and, and all of these things were fulfilled definitely in his calling to be an apostle. That's why the Apostle Paul can begin a letter here as he does with this type of authoritative statement. Because right in verse 1 he says, this is how he begins his letter to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior in Christ Jesus who is our hope. Um, just what I wanted to note about that is, is the fact that if you're familiar with the relationship of, between Paul and Timothy, if you know their relationship, we actually read some of the text from Philippians last week where how Paul speaks about Timothy with such an endearing, such a close relationship. It seems strange to me that the Apostle Paul would begin a letter to such a dear, maybe his closest brother in the Lord with such a... Um, such a bold statement of his apostleship and right it just it, it comes across as strange but if you think about it this is this is needed for maybe several reasons um the 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 topics and the discussion and, and the commandments that the apostle paul is bringing cannot be thought of by timothy as being um just mere suggestions from a good brother right it, there can be no no second thought in Timothy's mind about why Paul is writing. He's not writing just as a good dear brother right now only. He's also writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus who has, as it says, a commandment of God, see, to, to pass on. So I think he begins in such a way so as to make no uh, confusion or doubt about the, the seriousness of the topics that he's writing about and that Timothy is to receive this in a certain way. Right, with the highest authority behind it um, that could possibly be there. So um, that's how Paul begins the letter. He addresses Timothy, um, as we said, his good dear brother. And so in this next phrase, we see that Paul does recognize at the same time that it's not all business with, with brother Timothy in that sense, because look how he, look how he speaks of Timothy in, in verse 2. He says, To Timothy, my true child, in the faith. That's an endearing uh, way to speak of somebody um, because he doesn't speak of anyone else in the ways that he speaks about Timothy. To Timothy, um, to the Apostle Paul, he is his true child in the faith. Paul speaks this way about Timothy because in a sense, the Apostle Paul spiritually birthed Timothy. He spiritually raised Timothy. Um, as you read through the book of Acts, um, in Paul's first missionary journeys where um, Paul and Barnabas go through um, Lystra and Derby in these cities preaching the gospel, um, I think that's probably where, the, uh, where, where Timothy um, was converted through this first missionary journey. Paul makes a second missionary journey as Silas within this time. Uh, this is all in Acts chapter 16 where they return to the city of Lystra. That's where it says uh, that the apostle Paul, that's where he takes Timothy at that point and recruits Timothy to, to be a traveling uh, minister with him and a helper for him. And it's on this second journey that he does that. When Paul comes the second time through Lystra and finds Timothy, that's where Acts chapter 16 verse 2 says that Timothy was well spoken of by all the brethren. You see, so the, the, Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren in Lystra. The apostle Paul recognized uh, that calling on Timothy's life and recruited him to the work of missionary um, endeavors. 
And I also want us to read it. So turn to Philippians chapter 2. Um, because over time, Timothy's faithfulness was proven to the Apostle Paul. We see it in Philippians chapter 2. I think last week we read this, either the last week or the week before. But look at the way the Apostle Paul speaks of his true child in the faith, beginning in verse 19. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Now this is Paul's description of Timothy here, beginning in verse 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You see how high of a view the Apostle Paul had of young Timothy? Um, these, these words are... Um, special words. As I said, the Apostle Paul doesn't speak this way. He, he mentions brethren and he mentions highly of them, but the way the Apostle Paul speaks of Timothy is, is, is something else. It's, it's, it's a very deep, close, and personal relationship that they, that they have. And that is their relationship, but this letter is not um, simply intended to be a, a father uh, spiritually ministering to his spiritual son in that sense. That's not the occasion for the letter. Um, he gives us the occasion for the letter. Let's look at verse 3 now. It says, <clears throat> I'm back in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, where here's the occasion for Paul's writing of this letter. He says to Timothy, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, he says, Remain on at Ephesus. That's where... Timothy is. That's where Timothy's receiving this letter. He says, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. You see, he's left him for a reason in Ephesus. The Apostle, uh, or the Apostle Paul has given Timothy a calling. He's given him a, an assignment in a sense. And this is going to be a difficult assignment if you know... Uh, about Timothy, the way the Apostle Paul describes Timothy later in, in the letters, you know, as a seemingly a, a, a meek man, a young man, maybe intimidated. Um, this is going to be a, a, a high calling for this young man, certainly. He's giving him a, def, uh, a difficult task, just putting him in a church to oversee heresy is what it is. Men are teaching strange doctrines, all kinds of, as it goes on to say, they're teaching myths and endless genealogies which are giving rise to all kinds of speculations and there's all kinds of false teaching going, going around in this church. Paul says, Timothy, go take care of that. Young Timothy, go instruct these men, these probably older men than you are, to not teach these things. Can you imagine that calling? Um, it, it is big. So all of this is taking place. Um, the dating for this letter would be around... Uh, the early to mid 60s, 62, 63, probably no later than 64 AD. Um, all of this is taking place post um, Paul's Roman imprisonment, first Roman imprisonment. So this is all post after Acts, the book of Acts, after Acts 28. This is 
when these things are taking place, you can't really place these pastoral epistles in the narrative of the book of Acts. So this is, this is happening after the book of Acts. Um, what else here? Yeah, I said that as you read through these, as I talk about how difficult this, this task would be for, for Timothy, there's many errors doctrinally in this church. It's not they're getting off on this one particular aspect to go, you know, straighten this out with these verses, right? It, it, there's a wide range of error in these churches. We'll actually get to look at the errors in this church. Um, but the Apostle Paul, um, and we'll just end here by way of introduction, but the Apostle Paul, he cared deeply for this church, maybe more than others in one sense. This church in Ephesus where he's, he's sending Timothy, um, Paul cared deeply for them, and this was a special church the Apostle Paul, and we know that because as you read through the narrative of the book of Acts, this church in Ephesus that was planted there by Paul is where Paul spent the most time. He spent the longest stint of any of his, his stays at any of his uh, missionary endeavors. He spent three years at this church in Ephesus, which is much longer than he spent any. I mean, this was... Um, a, certainly a special place for the Apostle Paul. It would have definitely held a special place in his heart. He would have known these brothers, these people, better than anybody. Um, he would have probably you know, had that, that special relationship, that closer, more intimate relationship with these people having been there for three years. He would have known them all by name, all by faith. He would have known their kids. I mean, that's why, as these heresies are springing up in this church, the Apostle Paul could not overlook this. He could not... Um, turn a blind eye. He loved these people. And so in love, he's addressing the error. This is how the Apostle Paul loves the church. He addresses the error, and, he, and he's looking to correct it and to, and to, as we'll see, actually save some of these people's souls from, from heretical destruction, from damnation. Their teaching gets so aberrant. It gets so off. The Apostle Paul is trying to, to hang on, as it were, by the, by the legs of these people to keep them from going too far astray and so that's that's what we're looking at here um i think maybe as we as we're looking at this book in reference to the systematic topic of the doctrine of the church i think right right off the bat we can see um as we talk about the church we talk about the issues of the church we can see how important um doctrine is to the church you see, as we, as we begin this, this letter here, as Paul's saying, I wrote this whole letter so you'll know how to conduct yourselves in the church. What's the first thing he mentions? False teaching and, and bad doctrine and errors in teaching. That's, that's already taking a priority in the apostle. Because he's going to mention other errors, um, not a, a doctrinal errors in a sense, more practical errors. But what's the first thing that comes to his mind? Why is Timothy primarily sent there? Doctrinal integrity. That's why the apostle... Um, that's why Timothy was sent there. And so we see that, that doctrine in that sense is no secondary issue. It's no secondary issue. Um, just as we've seen recently, like at the Emmaus Conference, as Phil Johnson touched on that John 1.14 passage where it speaks of Christ, the person of Christ, and how as he came, he was the embodiment of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ was. And you can see in the, in, in the person of Christ how these two things cannot be separated. Grace and truth cannot be separated. Um, 
The Apostle Paul's going to tell Timothy, also in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 16, he's going to tell Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. So you pay attention to your life, pay attention and make sure that the grace of God is working in your life, and pay attention to your teaching. And if you watch these things, you will save both yourself and those who, whom you teach. You see, so you can't separate these things. You can't separate the teaching, the doctrine, the truth from the grace that it should be producing in your life. They, these things cannot be separated. They really, actions, actions and doctrine will both be handled. They go hand in hand. I said it like this, doctrine without action is dead, right? Like faith without works is, doctrine without actions is dead. Actions without doctrine does not glorify God. You see, you can outwardly keep the morality and the standards in a sense of the Bible, but unless theologically you understand why you should be doing these things, unless you're serving the one and true God, right? Unless you've been saved by grace through faith, those things are not impressing God. You're not glorifying God. God is not pleased with your actions if you're not doing them in the grace of God, right? And for his glory. So if you don't have a theological understanding of why you're keeping the morality of the Bible, you're not, you're not actually helping yourself or anyone else or glorifying God, see? So the Apostle Paul recognizes all of this, but I see it, I see it here beginning with doctrine. It begins with doctrine. Um, maybe, maybe just I'll end with one last text, because I think that clock was a little bit ahead, wasn't it? So with the last just couple of, couple of seconds here, turn to Acts chapter 20. Now, obviously, next week we're going to have to pick up here, but I did want to make a little excursus to the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 20, for a reason. We'll talk more about why we want to turn here next week. But I thought it was interesting to note that this heresy that's, that's popping up in this church in Ephesus did not come as a surprise to the Apostle Paul. He actually knew prophetically that this was certainly going to happen, which, which is amazing, which is very interesting. So look at, in Acts chapter 20, look down at verse 28. Um, I'll just read a couple of these verses here and we'll end here. But um, none of this was happening um, without the Apostle Paul being aware. In verse 28, so, so the background to Acts chapter 20 is the Apostle Paul here has returned to Ephesus. He's planted the church um, he's done his three-year stint there. He left, and he, and he, and he makes a run in his journeys um, to Miletus, which is close to Ephesus, and he calls for himself the elders of the church of Ephesus. He, doesn't, he says he doesn't have time to stop. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's trying to make it for Passover. So he says, just send the elders to me. Let me talk to them one last time before I think the Apostle Paul thought he would never see them again. But these are the last things that he's leaving with the elders in this church. In verse 28, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Paul's, Paul's giving them a heads up. He's warning them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the, uh, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And look at verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul knows that people are going to come in and infiltrate this church and try to teach strange doctrines, but not only from the outside, unfortunately, 
and scary enough. Verse 30 says, And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. You see, the Apostle Paul was fully aware of what was going to happen in this church. Um, Knowing that, and I think apparently finding out about even the specifics of the heresies that were going on in this church, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, um, and he's going to tell them how to address these errors uh, that are being taught in this church. So Paul's primary concern here is the doctrinal integrity of the church. He's going to address a lot more issues. Obviously, there were other things going on in the church. The church was, had some disorder in some other, other ways. But I think as we look through these heresies, we'll discuss maybe what these heresies were, what these heresies maybe came to be known. It's actually very difficult to, to put a name on them you know, as, as we try to name certain heresies. These were, this is a wide range of error that was going on there, a very mixed bag of error. Um, but we'll look and see how it is that we too can protect ourselves from these same kinds of errors and protect our church to make sure that it, it remains a biblical church, um, to, ma- to make sure we, we maintain the unity of the church in doctrine. That's a primary focus for us. And that's something that we all, including yourselves, have a calling to help us with, is to maintain the doctrinal integrity of this church because without it, all else is lost. All else is lost. So let's pray and we'll go to service. Well, Father, Father, it is our great privilege to be your people, to be in your church. It's a privilege, Lord, that none of us fully are thankful for as we should. God, help us. Help us to be more appreciative of this grace that we did not deserve. Help us to love you more, Lord God. Help us to love your church. Help us to love the body of Christ as we should. Help us to be a a healthy member of your body so that you are glorified. God, let, let even our worship service today be an end to that means. Please bless us as we, as we worship you, stir uh, stir up true faith and, and a faith that, that leads to joy, that our worship and our song would be joy coming from us. And Lord, bless your word as it's preached to us. We thank you, God, that we still have the peace, that we still have the time, that we still have this place to come and sit underneath your word, Lord, and we submit ourselves even now to whatever it is that you have to say to us, Lord. We know that you have the words of eternal life, and so we willfully submit to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.